Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Today we are starting a new sermon series on the book of Romans. And so if you turn there with me in your Bibles or in your worship guides, we'll be looking at the first 17 verses of chapter 1 and then verse 12 of chapter 15. One uh, great way to kick off the new year would be uh, if you don't necessarily have another Bible reading plan or perhaps in addition to your Bible reading plan as we're going through Romans together as a congregation would be to work through Romans regularly. If you read two chapters a day, which isn't going to take you too long, then you would be through Romans almost once a week. We'll get a very good feel for the book if you continue to do that as uh, we progressed through the series. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then 15 verse 12. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, again, Happy New Year to you all. I'm sure that you are all eagerly anticipating jumping into Romans at the beginning of a new year. Your experience may not be quite like mine. Having grown up in the church, um, I grew up in a little bit different day. And I remember, well, it seems like to me now that when my pastor growing up went through Romans, we were in Romans for years. I think it was actually two years, but... Uh, within our denominational circles, there's one man, Jim Boyce, who is famous for, I think, spending near 
somewhere between 8 and 10 years in the book of Romans. So I wanted to put you at ease. We're not going to do that. Uh, we will take it a little bit faster than that. But the question we should ask at the beginning of any new sermon series is why are we jumping into the book of Romans? Why Romans? Well, first, several pastors and teachers, professors that I had in seminary uh, warned all young ministers that you should not touch the book of Romans until you have been in ministry for 10 years. And since it is my 10th year in ministry, I thought we would give it a shot. <laughs> Time will tell whether this is wisdom or foolishness. Uh, second, there are different ways to approach the Bible, particularly as we go through sermon series. And it's important that you know the difference and value that we do both. On the one hand, we can do something systematically, and a good example of that is the Advent series that we've just completed. We organized our sermons around the idea of uh, wrestling with and examining our longings as we look forward to the second coming of Christ. That's an important way sometimes to approach the Bible, to see what all the Bible says to say about a particular topic. But at the same time, sometimes we need to come to the Bible and simply go through a book and let the book speak to us. Because if we're always organizing our sermon series around our questions, then inevitably, to some degree, we're going to hear what we want to hear. And so we take a season in which we come to a book and, and simply expose ourselves to the book. And that's what we're doing with the uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. And this, is, um, this has become increasingly uh, infrequent. You know, in preparation for preaching through Romans, I went online to look for organizations of sermon series through the book of Romans. And I couldn't find a, um, I could find very few, let's put it that way. I was looking at dozens of churches. I could find very few sermon series that actually went through the entire book of Romans. And so that says something about you too as a congregation, that you are able and willing to go through the book of Romans as a whole and consider that to be important. You live in an age in which many of the churches that surround us reduce sermon series to what people feel like they need to hear. Right? Uh, seven biblical tips to what you need in business, or seven reasons why Jesus wants you to be successful, or the biblical road to happiness. Right? Those are the sermon series that are geared by our own felt needs. We need to come to the Bible and sometimes say, you know, maybe my felt need isn't my real need. And by hearing from the Word of God, we realize what our real needs are. Third, Romans is easily Paul's most sophisticated and elaborate expression, examination, consideration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By working through Romans, you will have a much better understanding of the gospel And for Paul, the gospel, as we've seen right here in chapter 1, is the very power of God. If you have a greater understanding and grasp of the gospel, as Paul explains it in Romans, I think we should expect that we will have a better um, understanding, but also greater experience of the power of God. And fourth, and perhaps most personally, Romans is very much about struggling with God's faithfulness. That's That's either the question or one of the questions at the heart of Romans. For those people who are considering whether Jesus is Messiah, is God really being faithful? And you know that question. As you go through life and seek to be a disciple of Jesus and constantly experience things in which you think to yourself, 
boy, I wish Jesus would show up, and He's not showing up in the way I would expect Him to. Or simply wrestling with the notion, it's been a very long time since Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Is He really coming back? These are questions that we ask and sometimes are afraid to voice, in which we wrestle with God's faithfulness, which is a good thing because you have that in common with almost every saint of the Bible. But by wrestling with Romans, which is Paul's answer to that question, is God faithful? It helps us to understand how to wrestle with the question ourselves. So those are some of the main reasons that we're coming to Paul's letter to the Romans. And so as we jump in, it's important that you understand some of the background to the letter to the Romans to understand the book as a whole. You can't just jump into a letter that's 2,000 years old without understanding a little bit of the context in which it's written. Imagine reading someone else's mail right now. You might not understand large portions of it because you don't understand the context, and we're removed a very far distance uh, in time and in place from the letter to the Romans. And to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, we really have to back up and understand the story, or at least the trajectory of the Old Testament, the story of Israel which starts with a man named Abraham, a man that God calls out from a foreign land and chooses to be the one who would begin his people. And God makes impressive promises to this man Abraham. He promises him a huge tract of land. He promises him a multitude of descendants. And he promises him that through his descendants, his name will be a blessing to the nations. Big promises. And you see the story move forward of Israel, and Israel eventually becomes a people, and they come out of slavery in Egypt, and Moses is their leader, and then God gives them the Mosaic Law, which is a law that defines them as a people. And if they're faithful to that law and obedient, they will be materially blessed. They will reap great um, rewards for having been faithful. And you move a little bit forward in the story, and then Israel comes into its golden age and has some prominent kings, uh, Saul and David and Solomon. And God makes the promise that the scepter of Israel, the king, um, the kingly aspect of the nation of Israel will never depart from David's descendants. Now those are big promises. Huge. But what happens when you actually put feet on the ground in the first century. As you approach the time of Jesus, what's going on for Israel? Well, they don't own any land to speak of. They're not in control of anything. They may be a multitude, but they're under the thumb of foreign oppressors. They are hardly enjoying any material reward. They're poor, paying heavy taxes. The descendants of David are doing nothing more than working menial trades. There is no king of Israel. So what you need to feel is all the promises, these grand promises of God to the people of Israel, the first century, none of them really are true, have come true. None of them have been fulfilled. You feel the angst, the question that begins, well, is God really being faithful to these promises? Now you may be quick to say, well, I know the story, and I know that Israel is suffering for their disobedience. And you would be right to say that. That is indeed part of what's going on. But was all Israel disobedient? 
What about the prophets? What about those that God had preserved that had not bent the knee to Baal? What about people like Mary and Joseph living quiet and humble, godly lives? They're pictures of faithfulness, and yet they're not really receiving the fulfillment of any of the promises that God has laid out. And to get the idea of what's going on in the mind of some of the Jewish people in the first century and what Paul will have to respond to in the book of Romans, imagine a family going on a a car trip. Go on a road trip, and uh, of course the parents are worried, is this trip going to be miserable, or is this trip going to be enjoyable? And so the father says, listen, kids, if you behave yourselves, if you are obedient, if you don't, if I don't hear out of your lips, uh, how far do we have to go, or are we there yet? When we get there, I'll give you $5. So the car ride commences. They make the trip. They arrive, and over the course of the car ride, two of the three children are awful. They are just, their behavior is despicable. They rebel in every fashion. The car ride is miserable. One child was angelic. But the father, in his anger, at the end of the car trip, curses all his children. He says, I can't believe that I ever ever gave birth to you. You will, you will receive nothing but punishment. How do you think the angelic child feels? How do you feel on behalf of the angelic child? Now you may be tasting just a little bit what's going on for some of the Jewish people in the first century as they have long waited for God's promises to be fulfilled. In fact, they've waited so long that a fascinating thing has happened in between the Testaments. Between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the belief of Israel um, is for, it changes. It's foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but it doesn't really occur until in between the Testaments. And what happens is this. Um, in the Old Testament, what happens after death is very vague. But in the 400 years between the Testaments, the people of God have, have so long waited for God's promises to be fulfilled and have been so often disappointed that they begin to formulate a theology of resurrection. In other words, they say, you know what? We've waited so long for God to fulfill His promises in this life, we've had it wrong. His fulfillment isn't coming in this life. His fulfillment is coming in the resurrection after death. And so a great example comes from a book written during this time, Second Maccabees, which tells a story of a mother and seven children that will be, are being put to death for their faithfulness as, to God as Jews. And each gives a speech that kind of testifies to their faithfulness before they die. But when it comes to the third brother, uh, his speech runs as follows. When it was demanded, he's being put to death. When it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said nobly, I got these from heaven, and because of his laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. In other words, what do you hear the third brother recognizing? He's being put to death unjustly, but he believes that by virtue of his faithfulness, there will be a resurrection. He will receive back what he is giving up by being put to death as a martyr. And this becomes the belief of many of the faithful, not all of the faithful, but many of the faithful Jews coming into the first century. Now, what happens? 
Many of the faithful are saying God will be faithful in resurrection. And God finally shows up and He resurrects one person. What do you do with that? Right? It changes everything. It's not the expectation. If you're the faithful, you're hoping for resurrection, God shows up and resurrects one person, you think that's not the way it was supposed to go. Is God going to be faithful? This one resurrection changes everything. It demands that everything must be rethought. It's almost, if you go back to the car trip analogy, imagine the dad at the end of the trip saying to the angelic child, oh, you thought I was going to give you $5? I meant that you could choose the charity of your choice, and I would donate the $5 to that charity. right? Because resurrection is being conferred upon Jesus alone, not upon the people at large. It's an unexpected turn of events which demands the people wrestle with whether or not the question with whether or not God has been faithful. And as I said, this is at the heart of Paul's letter to the Romans. Is God being faithful? Both the Jewish Christians in Rome who have converted to worship Jesus and the Gentiles who have come in and and learned the story of Israel are wrestling with this question. Is this the fulfillment of God's promises? If it is, well, it raises a number of different questions. And before we get into those, I want you to know to at least begin to recognize, perhaps you're very familiar with this, but perhaps you need to to pause for a moment and examine your own heart and ask the question, do I wrestle with whether or not God is being faithful to His promises? God's made lots of promises to you in the New Testament. Consider some of them. Matthew 17.20 says, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Or John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Or Matthew 19, 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. Yes, granted, this is a highly selective list, and you might argue that I've taken them a bit out of context, but these are statements that Jesus makes, the promises. Do you feel like they're true of your life? Well, say that list isn't fair. Okay, let's back up from what the promises may say that we're able to do to the promises of God and what we experience. For example, that that God's love, His perfect love, casts out fear. Do you have any fear? Or that in Christ you have peace that passes understanding. Do you have more peace than your neighbor? You begin to wrestle with questions like that. You begin to say, oh, are these promises really coming true? Is God really being faithful? Because, yeah, I have a lot of fear. And I know some people, not in the church, and they have seem to have a lot of peace. What do I make of that? Is God being faithful to his promises, or is he not? And this is the question that uh, Paul must deal with. He must do business with as he is seeking to present Uh, Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises and to encourage the church in Rome in their faith. And as we jump in, I briefly want to observe four four aspects to Paul's thought in life that are absolutely transformed by the resurrection. And they introduce the major themes of Romans and they demand of us, us wrestling with, is resurrection really changing everything for us? It changes everything for Paul. 
And if we want to understand the resurrection like he does, then it has to change everything for us. You can tell a lot about a letter by its introduction and by its closing. And in verse 2, Paul writes that the gospel, the good news that's embodied in Jesus, is exactly what God has promised through the prophets. In other words, Paul is making the point that whatever you thought the story was, whatever you thought or however you thought the promises might be fulfilled, Jesus was the ending all along. This is where the story was headed. And as a result of drawing that conclusion, he must rethink a number of things. Number one, resurrection changes the way Paul understands the Son of God. Number one, changes the way Paul understands the Son of God. In verse 4, Paul writes that Jesus was declared or established as Son of God according to the Spirit by virtue of what? His resurrection. Some people have read this simply to be a statement that Jesus has always been Son of God. He's pre-existent. It is none of that. Paul is saying that by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection, he has received the appointment or the title or the authority of Son of God. You have to understand that Son of God was not a title that was reserved exclusively for Jesus. It is a title that is used throughout the New Testament or the Old Testament and is applied to judges. It's applied to uh, the Davidic kings. It's applied to the people of Israel as a whole. Right? Many, many groups or individuals are given the title Son of God throughout the story. God, but then Paul gets to Jesus and he says, uniquely, in a new way, Jesus assumes this title by virtue of his resurrection. That's what earns him that title and that authority. And so Paul must understand the Son of God, not as Israel, not as Davidic kings, not as judges, not as the people, the saints of old who led Israel, but now newly as a humble servant who earns the title by virtue of going to the cross. Number two, resurrection changes the way that Paul sees all people. Right? Paul, who was a very faithful Jew prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus, saw the world very simply. There were Jews, and there was everyone else. Gentiles. And Jews were God's favorite people, chosen by His grace to be His representatives in this world. But by virtue of Jesus' resurrection, Paul says some fairly outstanding things. Look at verse 14. Regarding the gospel, there is no financial qualification, which is what he means by the distinction between Greek and barbarian. There is no intelligence qualification, the wise and the foolish. And in verse 16, he makes clear that the gospel is the very power of God to everyone who believes, regardless of finances, intelligence, or ethnic background. Now, for a guy who is part of a people who has been privileged for thousands of years, to suddenly view all people as equal as a result of one man being raised from the dead. Paul sees all people in a new light by virtue of the resurrection. But this raises a very interesting question. Imagine, you're, try, try to imagine that you are an Israelite, you have sought to be a faithful Israelite, and you hear the story of Jesus as the Messiah. And for centuries, you are part of a people who have sought to be faithful by obeying the law. And you think about your long history of temple and sacrifice 
and identity with God according to the Mosaic law. And here Paul comes and says, no, that distinction's done. Now, the gospel goes to all who believe. Well, if you're a Jewish person trying to understand Jesus and maybe coming to believe in him, you think, uh, what was the point of the last 1,500 years? What was the point of Abraham? What was the point of temple and sacrifice and Mosaic law? What was the point of Sabbath and circumcision? If all that comes to an end in the resurrection of one man, why did we go down that road? That's one of the most significant questions that, with, that Paul will wrestle with in the book of Romans. Because the resurrection has changed the way that Paul sees all people. Third, resurrection redefines the power of God. Many over, over the uh, history of the church have considered chapter 1 verse 17 to be the thesis statement of the book of Romans. And it is important, but it can be misunderstood. If you look there, you'll probably recognize verse 17, as it was incredibly significant for people like Martin Luther. It says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the verse is a little bit funny and can be, I think, misunderstood. I mean, the phrasing is a little bit odd, right? Faith for faith. And what does it mean to say that God has faith? Well, one of the things that's helpful to know about verse 17 is that in Greek, the word for faith and faithfulness is one in the same. and can be translated either way. I think Paul is enjoying uh, some... some uh, some breadth, some semantic domain in terms of what the word means. Right? In other words, this is Paul's point. The gospel is being revealed not from God's faith, but from God's faithfulness. The resurrection is God being faithful to the promises that he has made, and it is revealed and appropriated to people now by faith, not by law, but that faith in turn produces faithfulness. For Paul, there is no faith that does not create faithfulness. And this is now the power of God, where formerly the power of God regarding salvation and right standing with God was executed through law and through sacrifice. And now suddenly, it's executed through a relationship with a person being bound up with the righteous one. It's characterized by faith in the risen Christ that produces faithfulness. The power of God now is exercised in this world in a completely different way. Fourth, the resurrection redefines the way Paul understands himself. In verse 1, Paul calls himself a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, this is actually a very awkward and surprising way to describe himself. Why? Because in Rome, it was uh, Romans highly valued their citizenship, their freedom. To be a slave was to be on the bottom of the economic ladder. So if you're writing to someone, compelling, you know, trying to encourage them in the faith or to make Jesus a, uh, a palatable and winsome, uh, you're trying to make an argument for Jesus as Messiah, describing yourself as the slave of this person is not very attractive. It doesn't make sense for the sake of the argument. 
It only makes sense if there's no other word for which Paul can grasp. And by that I mean this, that by understanding that God has been faithful to His promises when no one else could be faithful, by sacrificing His own Son and raising Him from the dead so He becomes the one and sole appointed Son of God, Paul understands that he is owned and rescued by the blood of Jesus and that there is no other place for him than to be the slave of Jesus Christ. There is no better place for Paul to be than to be the slave of Jesus Christ. So even though it's awkward for his argument, Paul absolutely reconsiders himself, which is funny when Paul talks about his life in Judaism. Yes, he thought he was serving God, but he was very much, he was proud. He was very much about his, his, um, his own career moving forward, gaining reputation amongst Judaism and amongst his brothers. And here, now that he worships the risen Christ, he says, you know, I'm a slave. Language that he never would have used as, as a Jew in that sense. And so, the resurrection changes the way Paul understands himself. And it's these four aspects that we must wrestle with as well. Resurrection must change the way that you see the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the one who comes faithfully to go to death so that we might be redeemed. You know what's interesting? When the Bible talks about the Son of God and the power of Jesus, we often talk about how perfect Jesus was, how He obeyed the law. And that is very true and very important. But when the New Testament writers typically want to talk about why Jesus' death was effective for our salvation, do they run and say, oh, Jesus obeyed all the law, that's why he was perfect? No, they do not. What do they do? They run to the cross and say that Jesus was willing to be obedient to the Father unto death, that he did not deserve, and that is what makes his life effective for our salvation. It is his passive obedience, his willingness to go to the cross, Look at Philippians 2. That's what, that's what, in a sense, earns him the title, Son of God. And when we see the Son of God defined in that way as the suffering servant, it redefines how we understand Jesus. His, his meekness is his strength. His humility and his obedience to the Father is his example to us. And to identify with him is also to be willing to suffer that he might be glorified. Number two, like Paul, resurrection must change the way that you see people. Do not kid yourselves. We are all ridiculous judges of people. Our hearts are quick to create categories into which people fit. We are quick to summarize people's stories. Why? Because it's easier. And often we can put them in a box in which we can dismiss them. Think about them. If we look at Paul and see how radically to, to be a Jew and look down on the rest of the world, and then to be the servant of all for the sake of the gospel, challenges us all that we must see everyone as an opportunity for the gospel to go forward. There is no one outside the reach of Jesus' arm from our perspective. And so boldly we go to them in love and share the gospel as Paul did. Number three, resurrection must change the way you understand the faithfulness of God. Now, we've hinted at it today in an introductory fashion, but we really have to wrestle with um, the way that Israel believed that God's promises would be fulfilled in a certain way, only to be disappointed. 
we struggle very much with a very similar affair. We, we believe the promises of God should be fulfilled in a certain way. And we've all got needs, hurts, wounds, and we want them to be bound up in a certain way. And we say, that's what it will mean if God is faithful. Well, Israel is shocked when God shows up to be faithful. You may be shocked when God shows up to be faithful. Because He may be fulfilling His promises to you in a way that is completely counterintuitive, just like the cross was completely counterintuitive. Fourth and lastly, resurrection must change the way you see yourself and your place in this world. So often we inform ourselves by the cultural streams that surround us, which are to move ahead, to acquire more, to make more of a name and reputation for yourself. And for Paul, who had all of that, he says, now, from my conversion forward, I am a slave. And I surrender it all for the glory of Christ and the power of the Gospel. Are you surrendering your life and what you possess for the sake of the Gospel? For the power of God? Or do you cling to certain aspects of it and say, yes, I'm willing to surrender this, but not this? In that, you really haven't embraced the slavery that Paul has. And I will guarantee you this, that probably none of us in this room will ever know the joy that Paul knew. Why? Because we will probably never get quite to that point of becoming a slave in the way that Paul was a slave to the Gospel and knew the joy of completely fulfilling uh, or to the to a very dramatic extent, the will of the Father to the glory of Christ. As we enter into the season of Romans, and as I, I hope you are spending time in it regularly, seeking to wrestle with this book, throughout, we must wrestle with this truth, that resurrection changes everything. If you don't immediately understand what that's about to some extent, then we've got a lot of wrestling to do in the book of Romans. But the end is glorious. The end is knowing the power of God, and the end is embracing our slavery unto our King, our good King, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise You and worship You and marvel at the resurrection. Unexpected, yes, and yet, Paul will argue that it is Your very faithfulness to Your promises. So help us learn and be encouraged by Your faithfulness. And we pray that as we are challenged by Your faithfulness, it will chase our doubt away, it will draw us near to You, and we will have even greater hope for the future. We ask that You would bring this to pass. In Christ's name, Amen.